listening to this BJSM podcast and I'm speaking to Ray Moynihan and he's different for us in terms of our usual physios and doctors but Ray's actually a journalist, he's an award winning journalist, he's an author, he's a video maker and I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast so let me say hi to Ray. G'day Karim, how are you going? Great thanks and uh, thanks for making the time for us. You're working on overdiagnosis, now what's the big picture about overdiagnosis and why should people care? Well, overdiagnosis is increasingly being recognised as something of a major public health problem. When we say overdiagnosis, we mean people being diagnosed with diseases or conditions that would never actually harm them. Now, I know that sounds bizarre, but in fact, this is happening far more often than we might think. One of the main ways that it's happening is through cancer screening. So through cancer screening, uh, for some cancers, we are finding many uh, abnormalities that we are calling cancer, uh, but in fact would never have gone on to harm that person. Um, but uh, it's a much bigger problem than just cancer screening. And in fact, many conditions, uh, the research, the evidence is starting to suggest that across many conditions, um, we are simply labelling people way too often. And you started on the idea of selling sickness and sort of focusing on drug companies initially. Tell us about that. Well, I suppose the, the, the whole focus of a lot of the work that I've done, both as a journalist, an investigative journalist, an author, and now as a researcher, is, is, is into this problem of too much medicine. Clearly, uh, medicine, whether it's sports medicine or other medicine, carries enormous benefits. We have such valuable uh, things to work with in terms of drugs and diagnostic tests and surgery and so on. But there is little doubt that we now have in many places, in many parts of the world, particularly in the wealthy West, too much medicine. Um, so the book Selling Sickness was about the way in which pharmaceutical companies, particularly in their marketing strategies, are helping to broaden the boundaries that define illness so that more and more people are turned into patients. And Selling Sickness has about 10 case studies. So I look at uh, various conditions, whether it's depression, ADHD, the menopause, uh, osteoporosis, and I investigate uh, in, 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 um, in collaboration with a co-author called Alan Cassells from Canada, I investigate the ways in which drug company marketing, um, often in alliance with sectors within the medical profession, uh, are really working to, to widen the boundaries of illness. Now, sometimes that's valuable and you are, you are catching people at the early stages of disease and helping to prevent their illness. Uh, but in other cases, you are medicalizing ordinary life. You are turning people into patients and you are ending up with unnecessary diagnostic labels and unnecessary treatments. And so let's stick with your, your current work. What do you focus on right now as you're in the latter part of your PhD? One of the conditions that I'm looking at as part of the PhD is called chronic kidney disease. Uh, now, some of your listeners may know that about 10 years ago, a whole bunch of kidney specialists came up with a new definition, a new construct called chronic kidney disease. Now, part of the problem is 
they set the boundaries so wide that many, many healthy older individuals are now being labelled with that label, chronic kidney disease or CKD, whereas in fact they have normal kidneys for their age. Uh, kidney function changes over our lives like, like many other parts of our bodies, things change as we age uh, and uh, there's a whole controversy going on within the, the, the kidney specialty, within kidney medicine about whether or not the very definition of CKD is axiomatically, is, is, is automatically causing a lot of overdiagnosis, particularly among elderly people. Uh, so that's one example uh, of, of, of where this problem of overdiagnosis exists. But, but there is evidence across quite a number of conditions. There's in fact a, a series underway in the, in the British Medical Journal uh, in their analysis section and that series uh, has now had about four or five or six different conditions covered. Uh, depression, ADHD, chronic kidney disease, pulmonary embolism. Um, I, th I think the fear is once you start to look closely at what's happening within a particular subspecialty in medicine, you're going to find similar patterns. And, and those patterns are that, that more and more uh, people who were previously considered normal are now considered to be either diseased or at risk of future illness. And, and there's a tremendous uh, unease about this problem of too much medicine and there's an awful lot of activity going on within the medical profession itself uh, and, and in wider civil society to try and understand this problem and, and prevent it. And it's clearly relevant to sports medicine because physical activity is one of the treatments. That, that's right. So I automatically wonder when you've got a, a condition in inverted commas that can actually be fixed or ameliorated through walking or through some sort of exercise regime, why is it appropriate to even medicalise that? Um, I often wonder this in, in relation to a lot of the, the conditions that really are risk factors. I mean, when we're talking about some forms of type 2 diabetes or hypertension or osteoporosis or high cholesterol, we're not talking about diseases or conditions, really. We're talking about risk factors for future illness. And, and for many of those so-called conditions, exercise regimes, uh, in, in my reading of the evidence, uh, are often just as, as valuable uh, and efficacious uh, but obviously a lot less harmful than, uh, than some of the preventive medications. So the question really is, are we handing out diagnostic labels far too readily? And, and presumably this, this could well be uh, uh, quite an issue within sports medicine. And John Neonides, um, who I'm sure you know well, had a paper in the BMJ at the end of last year, looking at these risk factor conditions and comparing drugs and exercise to the best of the ability you could from the research and in that meta-analysis show that exercise was as effective or better than drugs in conditions like hypertension and diabetes prevention. Yes, that, that was a terrific paper. When, we, when you, you raised the issue before about, about arthroscopy and this is not an area I know well but uh, many of your listeners probably are familiar with the fact that there have been some quite famous studies published in the last 
10 or 15 years uh, where where sham surgery has ended up doing just as well as real surgery um, in, in terms of arthroscopy. And, and there was a paper, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as, as recently as the last couple of months published in the New England Journal of Medicine by a Finnish group uh, who again found that uh, sham surgery was as good or no worse than real surgery uh, in terms of, of other sets of knee problems. So again, I, I think there's real questions about whether there's too much diagnosis that's leading to too much unnecessary intervention with these problems of, of the joints. That's seven in paper where Teppo Javanen's the anchor author, showed really clearly that if in this population of 35 to 65-year-old, they had symptoms consistent with a meniscal tear, but no arthritis. And then it was beautifully done in the sense that there was SAM surgery and uh, meniscal surgery and no difference in the outcomes, Ray. That's right. An extraordinary paper. I actually read it very recently and and was blown away by the rigour of the method, in fact. Uh, any, anyone, anyone nerdy like myself who takes an interest in the method sections of, of, of academic medical papers will find that very interesting reading. They, they even wrote their interpretation of the results before they unblinded the results of their randomised trial. Um, it, it, it was a very, to me, it seemed like quite a powerful paper. I'm sure it will be controversial um, because there'd be a lot of vested interests who would not be happy with the outcome. Um, but yes, I do know the work of Teppo and, uh, and I do know that he's done some work in the osteoporosis area as well. Um, I, I think that this whole area of osteoporosis needs a lot more scrutiny as to what's genuine pathology, what's real disease, what's normal life, what's normal ageing. And uh, in my mind, osteoporosis uh, is, is one of the great examples of over-medicalisation, the marketing of fear uh, that attempts to turn ordinary people's lives into medical conditions. Now, that's not to say that fractures aren't real. Of course, fractures are real, and uh, if we can do what we can to prevent fractures, we should. Uh, but I think if you look closely at the data for these preventive medications in the osteoporosis area, it's the people at the very high risk of fracture that may be getting some benefit. The people at very low risk of future fracture may, may be getting more harm than good from a long-term medical label and long-term uh, preventive medications. Yeah, no, fantastic, Ray. Thanks for bringing that up. And so for the listener who doesn't operate at your genius level, we've just uh, transitioned from osteoarthritis and uh, knee meniscal injuries to osteoporosis and the link being Teppo Jarvanen, who had a couple of really controversial papers in the BMJ um, criticising the current definition of uh, osteoporosis and he's extended that um, in a new paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal where, and this is an estimate, he was showing something like 80% or 90% of sort of 80 and 90 year olds would be on osteoporosis medication if you went with the new FRAX criteria. So a beautiful example of a medical group broadening the diagnosis and capturing virtually everyone in a population and making them patients. I think this I think this is a real problem and and uh you know I, I think it's really hard to to understand the extent of this problem of medicalizing ordinary life 
um, because there are just so many factors driving it. And medicine and medical technology uh, can offer such wonderful benefits. So, uh, you know, I think this, I think this argument that, that, that we have too much medicine, I think people often find unpalatable. They find it counterintuitive. But, but there's more and more evidence from people like Tepo, but, but, but thousands of other researchers as well, uh, showing that, that across the medical specialties, we, we may have uh, too many cases where, where people are being overdiagnosed, overtreated. I want to share um, another New England paper where they showed um, that it was about uh, knee reconstruction. And so a Swedish group um, led by Richard Frobel randomised people who had um, an acute ACL rupture into a group that went for immediate surgery and a group that went for rehab first and strength and balance training. And the argument was that you really use knee proprioception and strength and if you're well rehabilitated then a large proportion of people wouldn't need to have an artificial ligament put in. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one but obviously I wouldn't be telling the story if it didn't show that the um, conservative management, the non-operative management, the rehab, that group performed equally as well as the arthroscopic surgery group in 60% of the cases and then there was a group, a smaller group, let's say 35 to 40% who declared as being unstable and they needed to have the surgery. So the implication was that really arthroscopic surgery, which is um, arthroscopic knee reconstruction, which is I believe um, the number one billing item in orthopedics in North America, and they quoted a number of something like more than two billion dollars a year you know, in costs, could be reduced by 40%. And that hasn't mm. gone down well. The orthopedic surgeons have been very <laughs> rigorous in their review of that paper, and they found quite a few methodological mm. flaws in their minds. Mm. Look, it's very, very interesting. And I, look, I haven't read that paper. It sounds fascinating. I'm going to read it um, because I, I think it sounds like another case where th there may be too, too much surgery being done and another case where, as you say, con more conservative approaches may be more appropriate for a certain set of people. And, 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 and this is the thing. It's always worth reminding ourselves when we become very interested in the problem of too much, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's always worth reminding ourselves of the value of these treatments and technologies when they're appropriately used. And I think that um, the desire for you know, private profit, the desire for academic uh, status, uh, the desire to help people, whatever it is, is, is driving the, uh, too, too many uh, procedures, too many operations. And I think that the, the, the idea of conservative treatment is, is obviously something that you would almost automatically want to try out first if you could. And, and that leads to a wider point, I guess, about the way in which in this, this frenzy of medical uh, activity that we seem to live in now, uh, the, the, the natural history of, of a condition or of a symptom or of a problem can often get washed away. Um, and and, and let's, let's take depression, for example. It's almost now depression has almost axiomatically been hooked with, uh, linked with, connected to antidepressants. Um, but, but in fact, many people who will know the literature know that even a very, very serious major bout of what used to be, you know, major depressive disorder uh, will, will often 
clear up over time. Um, that's one example, and I'm not saying that, that medications can't be valuable for mental health problems. Of course they can. But I think, uh, I think thinking about the natural history, thinking about what happens if we do nothing, thinking about the most minimal intervention possible, the most benign intervention, the most benign approach, um, always seems to me to be to be the rational way to go uh, rather than to jump so quickly for the knife or the pill. Um, let me touch on MRI briefly in the context of sports medicine. You, know, you made the point that yes. as investigations are so powerful and we have um, so many fantastic advances, you, you really articulately made the point that it's about a balance and, and, and making judgment. That's why we need professionals who are well-trained and skilled. Um, otherwise, people could just walk through an MRI and make a diagnosis at home like... Um, shopping at the supermarket and checking out by yourself. So have you had thoughts on, on MRI? Is that something you've come across broadly? Look, I, I haven't specifically investigated MRI, but I think that MRI is another example of a technology that offers enormous benefits, but also is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the evidence is suggesting that MRIs can see an awful lot of abnormalities in inverted commas that that in fact would never have caused any harm and I think there is there is evidence now there's a there's a famous study I, I can't um, cite it for you I'm sorry but but I'm sure some of your listeners will know it already that if you give uh, people without any symptoms an MRI uh, the, the the MRI will find an average of 2.7 abnormalities yeah right or, absolutely or something like jump. that yeah, Ray, absolutely. I'm going to jump in there because uh, it's really prevalent in our field. So what they've done is they've in MRI used MRI in normal joints, like normal shoulders, normal uh, knees, especially in professional athletes. And uh, you do find consistent um, structural abnormalities as opposed to pathologies in people who don't have any symptoms right now and who don't go on to get symptoms. Yes, and and I think I mean there's a there's a word used um, uh, now called in incidentalomas that that some some of your listeners may have heard of before, uh, and and in the, this field of overdiagnosis, it's a word that that's getting a lot of attention, so that 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 many incidentalomas are picked up incidentally through investigations, and so this is. In my mind, uh, in my mind, uh, diagnostic tests are often seen as utterly benign, but in fact, one of the the real dangers of an MRI is that it that it will pick up an incidentaloma that that would never have harmed the person, but will cause a huge amount of grief through further testing and possible unnecessary treatment. Now, of course, the flip side, the corollary, uh, the other side of this argument is that that some people, many people perhaps, will be overjoyed to find those incidentalomas because it will mean that they'll be able to treat these abnormalities that they never knew were there and possibly save their life. Um, so so this, is a, this is a complex argument. It's not just black and white. But I think the, 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 you know, the danger of having an MRI on every corner is uh, is the danger of, of too much medicine? Of, of course, one of the benefits of MRI, uh, in my in my understanding, is that we we don't have anywhere near the same uh, dose of, of radiation we get from a CT scanner, and 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 just mentioning CT, 
uh, this in, in the short time that I've been writing about medicine, let's say it's, it's probably getting close to 20 years now, um, CT scans have gone from being heralded as the, the, the bright new world of medical diagnostic technology to a source of, uh, in some cases, tremendous amounts of radiation that, that can... Uh, significantly raise someone's risk of future cancer. And, and my reading of the evidence is that there is now a, a, a small but growing body of evidence that is actually starting to, to put figures on the increase in risk of cancer that is attached to uh, X number of uh, CT scans. And particularly when we're talking about uh, the CT scanning of children, th this is a real issue for us. So. Um, it's, it's just another example where this concern about too much medicine is not just the wild fantasy of a few uh, medical uh, weirdos. It's, it's, it's actually the outcome of, of, of quite rigorous research um, that, that's, that, that, is, that is causing great concern among the radiology community because the, those radiologists know better than anyone um, the actual doses that, that, that they are delivering to people. So, Ray, what's driving all this over-medicalisation? Is it drug companies, doctors? Look, this is a big question, and I think it's something that I have started to, uh, to shift in my thinking about. I, I think as an investigative journalist 15, 20 years ago, I was astounded by the, the nature of drug company marketing. Um, and the uh, nefarious and insidious and corrupt relationships between the drug companies and the so-called key opinion leaders. Um, over the last 15 years, there's been a lot more public attention on those relationships and, and the deleterious nature of them and the damage that they do to, to, to medicine and to public trust and so on. Um, and, of course, you've got the, the technology companies, the diagnostic technology companies in there as well, um, but I think as I've uh, dug more into this area and read more and thought more and perhaps matured uh, more and now looking more broadly at this problem of overdiagnosis and overmedicalization more broadly, I think what also comes into the picture is the, the demand to be tested, the demand to be treated, the demand to be given a diagnostic label that comes from us, from all of us, from the public, from the citizenry. And, and it seems that there, there, there is some sort of innate, uh, sometimes desperate need for certainty, for a name, for a label, uh, for a cure, for a panacea. And remember, panacea was a Greek goddess of healing. Um, and uh, she, whether we're atheists or agnostics or, or, or religious, I think many have uh, subscribed to Panacea's religion. Um, and, and so I think what, what we're faced with is a situation where we have uh, often an intuitive, um, deep intuitive faith in uh, diagnosis, in, in treatment, in medicine, um, in physio, uh, physiotherapy, whatever it is, a desire to be tested and to be treated. But the trouble is, as those diagnostic technologies become more and more sophisticated, 
we are finding abnormalities within ourselves, left, right and centre, which will never go on to harm us. Um, and we don't know yet which ones will and which ones won't. So I think that, that our desire to, to label and our desire to treat may be doing us more harm than good, more often than we think. Fortunately, uh, personally, I'm way above that panacea stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I know that physical activity cures everything. <laughs> um, Ray, before we go, we should mention... Well, cups the of tea. My, my, my panacea <laughs> is tea, and during this interview I've had uh, several cups of tea. Um, but, uh, look, it's been a lot of fun talking about this stuff. It's, I think this is one of... You know, it's one of the big controversies of the day. There's a lot going on within the healthcare establishment. There's a series of conferences that we're running called Preventing Overdiagnosis. The next one's coming up in in Oxford at Oxford University in September. There's a, there's a there's campaigns being organised in America. The the Right Care campaign has got off the ground there. That's run by the Lown Institute, very interested in reducing unnecessary interventions. The BMJ, of course, is, is very interested in this. Your journal is. Uh, I, I think there's a, a, a lot of unease within the healthcare establishment about excess, about too much. And I think the challenge ahead is how to wind that back safely and fairly. And... Elliot Fisher from Dartmouth came to visit UBC and talk about these issues? Yes, Elliot Fisher did some famous work, still is doing important work, uh, some seminal papers I believe published in JAMA in the early 2000s where he and his team up at Dartmouth uh, analysed, I believe it was Medicare data across the US and extraordinary findings where they, they took cohorts of of patients with exactly the same, let's say, uh, disease profile, demographic profile, um, and and the groups across the country. And, of course, they already knew at that point that there was enormous variation in how people were treated. Some cohorts of people were getting much, much more care than other cohorts, exactly the same matched demographics. Um, but what those papers that Fisher did uh, showed for the first time was that the people getting the most care were not actually any healthier than the people getting a lot less care. And in fact, there were trends in the data to suggest that the people getting the most care may have been uh, harmed or at risk of harm from that excessive care. Um, so I think that they were very, very important papers. Uh, Dartmouth has continued to be a leader in this uh, concern about too much medicine. And in fact, Dartmouth uh, in, in New England, in the US, was the site of the first Preventing Overdiagnosis conference that I helped organise last year, uh, the second one being at Oxford this year. Fantastic, Ray. We better leave it there because um, anyone who's on their way to a medical appointment is going to turn the car around and head home. But <laughs> that might be a good thing. Um, it's a topic, as you say, of general importance as uh, for us as clinicians. We've got doctors and physios, massage therapists listen to these um, podcasts. We, it affects our loved ones in thorough screening for prostate cancer, breast cancer, diagnosis of depression. So it is 
an essential topic. It's great to be able to have you on BJSM talking about it. Ray, well, thank, thank you. And if, if, if there's any if there's any myotherapists out there, I want to say a special hello to my sister. Uh, was a very uh, a very important myotherapist in Melbourne, and uh, just want to say a special hello to them. And we work closely with them and uh, thoughts with your sister, and um, great to get that acknowledgement for a hugely important group, Ray. So one of the privileges of being BJSM editor is that uh, I can get to chat to people who I really want to stalk on Google as a hero. Um, I came across your work first in the BMJ. I bought and read Selling Sickness, and uh, you've had a big influence on my thinking. And it's I don't know what all the answers are, and I think our listeners won't know what all the answers are after hearing this, but it's uh, absolutely thought-provoking and uh, we look forward to your PhD work coming out and following your work. And uh, I just hope this doesn't lead to a rash of uh, sports medicine keynote invitations for you, Ray, with your busy schedule. <laughs> Thank you very much, Karim. I really appreciate it. And, and look, unfortunately, I don't have the answers either. Uh, being a journalist, one of the luxuries is that you can just keep asking questions. As researchers do. So but we're all clinicians, so folks are going to be going to the office to make uh, helpful quality decisions, and I think your perspective will help them with their, their thinking about it, their reading of the literature, and their treating patients, which is ultimately the goal of BJSM. Thanks a lot for your time today, Ray. Thank you very much, Karim. You've been listening to Ray Moynihan, obviously. He's a former journalist. He's been pivotal in the field of overdiagnosis. His book, Selling Sickness, is um, compulsory reading, really, for every clinician. You can catch him and his colleagues at the Overdiagnosis Conference in Oxford on September 15 to 17, um, 2014. And thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for regular updates and let us know who you want to have on the podcast. Have an active day and thanks for listening.